my son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks... Then, there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, November 25th, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Children's International is working to end child poverty around the world by giving kids access to a safe place, a team, and a path out of poverty by focusing on health, education, empowerment, and employment. Together with people like you, they're more than a nonprofit. They're a powerful force for change. Learn more at children.org. There is one topic that we have covered more since my time as a co-host of this podcast than any other. What do you think that is? CRISPR. Oh, <laughs> not CRISPR, even though fans of the show know that I love talking about it. No, it's the brain. The brain comes up in many different episodes, whether we are talking to psychiatrists, psychologists, neuroscientists of all shapes and designs. And after a year and a half of talking to so many of these people, you know what I've come to the conclusion is? I know so little about the brain. And collectively, we know still pretty little about the brain. And this week, I set out to explore why we don't know so much about the brain in a really interesting way. We've talked about placebos before on this show pretty extensively. But we're going to talk about placebos this week in the context of our brain, in the intricate ways that placebos, nocebos, and even false memories indicate that our brain is more powerful than we give it credit for in terms of advancing chemistry throughout our whole body. Well, now, as a neuroscientist, you probably have feelings about this. I have feelings. <laughs> yeah. Tell me those feelings. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's not surprising to me given that you know, our brain is essentially, you know, it's it controls our bodies uh, in many different ways. You know, I think that there is still a kind of fallacy that we need to avoid, which is thinking about our brain as one entity that itself is sentient, right? Our brain is a multitude of networks that are working in parallel and things are happening and the vast majority of what's happening in our brain is outside of our conscious awareness. So, you know, there ju- it just happens to be a complex organ uh, that has effects on virtually all the other organs in our bodies. 
This is all true. I'm not debating any of that. But what I am suggesting is that maybe the brain has more uh, control. I'm going to use that word carefully. uh, An ability to impact us than we've given it credit for, especially in the context of how we develop and implement new drugs. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to see if you're still skeptical about this. So this week I talked to Eric Vance. Eric Vance is a award-winning science writer based in California and Mexico City. He has come out with this new book called Suggestible You that explores all these various ways that the brain can overcome control i'm using words that makes indre make a face uh and actually suggest uh, a greater control than we expect uh his new book is called suggestible you which is out now in bookstores everywhere how about we say influence or modulate i like saying control because it makes you make faces <laughs> all right you know i mean influence <laughs> so let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with eric vance If you're looking for a dose of good karma, check out Crazy Good Turns, a new podcast that celebrates people who do crazy good things for others. Each episode tells a vivid, moving story about someone who stretched the boundaries of human kindness to help people in need. This week's episode focuses on Matt O'Brien, a journalist turned philanthropist who's traveling to the depths of underground Las Vegas to provide help and hope to the homeless. Here's a sample of what you'll hear. There's a lot of myths about the homeless that I ascribed to before I went down there and, and that I later learned were not actually true. One thought I had was that these people would be violent towards me. The truth is they are polite. They're not looking for trouble. They generally want to have a place to live and to be left alone. But a lot of them did after I introduced myself, told them that I was a journalist, curious about the tunnels, it really opened up you know, after a while and, and shared their stories. Check it out at crazygoodturns.org or search Crazy Good Turns on iTunes, Google Play, or your preferred podcast provider. Eric Vance, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. A phrase that I've been hearing probably a little bit too much in pop culture lately is the phrase, I believe. I think it's a pretty common phrase to hear. I believe the Cubs will win the World Series, let's say, came out. Uh, What do you think when you hear the words, I believe? Um, Well, I've actually been thinking a lot about belief over the last couple of years. It's it's actually, I would say it sort of dominated my life. And I I was actually, I should start by saying I was raised in Christian science. I was, I didn't go to a doctor until I was 18 years old. And, uh, and so belief was a really important part of the way that like, you know, it was basically my healthcare. Um, So that's the, and people talk about belief, you know, and they they think of that, they think of like religious belief or they think of, you know, the Cubs are going to win, but belief is also, there's a deeper sort of belief that, that is essentially, I believe when I, when I drop a rock, it'll hit the ground. Like our belief is also the fundamental way that we make predictions about the world around us and, and their, you know, the, 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 the laws of the world. And, uh, what I've learned is that occasionally these beliefs that we have about, you know, God or about the Cubs, uh, can blend into the world of, uh, of the, these deep beliefs of, of how reality works. And you glossed over it quickly that you were raised in Christian science yes, and you I did. didn't see a doctor <laughs> till you're 18. Um, but what I got when I looked at your book is that you you still have a lot of respect for what came out of that. You don't necessarily subscribe to those 
belief systems anymore, but you respect what they seemingly respect what they the some of the conclusions they came to. Yeah, I um I think it's it's very easy to sort of you know, and of course you know I went through the period where I rebelled against you know my upbringing and all this is all you know terrible. But no, I mean people and this and this isn't just Christian Science. This is also um this is also many forms of belief. You know, from homeopathy to uh to uh, anyway any any type of belief that that dictates your 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 health care um these people aren't crazy we weren't crazy growing up my, my my family wasn't crazy people do these things because they believe and they they see results from them they 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 actually do make you feel better it, it it you know i was raised in christian science because my family thought that was the best most healthy way for their children children to be raised and so my question wasn't to prove or disprove that. My question is to understand why that is, how that works, how someone could be made to believe that. Uh, leaving religion aside, how, what might really be going on? And I get very interested in not the big miracles, not the walking up and healing leprosy miracles. I'm talking about the little ones, the daily ones, the ones that I saw growing up. You know, how do those work? I often hear people dismiss those little elements that you're referring to as, oh, it's just the placebo effect. I love that phrase. I hear that a lot. Um, and it's totally true. It's, except get rid of the just. Why should we get rid of the just? Well, because um, uh, it's, it's you know, placebo effects are like, you know, and, and belief generally is, is so much a part of our life. It has an amazing power to change, you know, uh, our bodies. That um, this is why people, you know, this is why people subscribe to things like, you know, homeopathy and and uh, and a lot of traditional medicines and alternative medicines. You know, they they function on the placebo effect. This is that's not a just. That is a that is a huge powerful motivator. And it's also on top of of regular of, of conventional medicine that we take. When you when you when you when you pop a, a a Tylenol, do you feel immediate relief? Do you feel that headache abate for just that that initial second? Well. If you do, that's a placebo effect. That stuff doesn't kick in for 20 minutes. But um, but you're feeling relief because of a very powerful force. And so it's it's by saying just a placebo effect, it's like dismissing it. We shouldn't be dismissing it. We should be understanding it, digging into it. Well, let's dig into it then. Uh, take us a little bit into the history of the placebo effect, because even though it's common parlance now, just to say the placebo effect... Uh, this has been in a area of research for decades, if not centuries. Yeah, um, if not millennia. Um, in you know, in my book, I had a tough time, um, you know, going, you know, whether where to start. Do I start with Emotep uh, or Hippocrates? You know, or uh, or Avicenna from Persia. I mean, like you 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 read the writings of of ancient physicians, and they're all dealing with the same thing in one form or another. They're all struggling to uh, to do many things. But you know, the, the placebo effect comes up again and again, and they have different words for it. So um, it's hard to know when to start. Uh, I, I talk a lot about mesmer. Mesmer seemed to be a master of placebos. He, he mesmerized water and then he'd give people water and it would make them feel better. Uh, and there's some great stories that deal with uh, how uh, he was shut down by none other than Bren Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin stepped on the scene. Uh, mesmer was hanging out a bit with Marie Antoinette more than maybe he should have. And uh, uh, the king decided that he'd, he'd get a panel together to figure out if this guy was for real. And Benjamin Franklin and a few other folks um, 
kind of did the first sort of placebo controlled trials to sort of see if if this water that he was magnetizing was working and then you you, you can jump ahead uh to a, a number of different places where this, it keeps popping up again and again and again i think um we started thinking seriously about it after world war 2 um it, it, placebo controlled trials go back to the turn of the century and people would use them but they were sort of a scientific anomaly you know you you you, you Tossing a placebo, maybe learn a little more about the drug, but it wasn't like a necessity. Um, and it really started with Henry Beecher and a, a few of his colleagues. He was a he was a, a scientist at Harvard who went to World War II. He was a doctor in World War II. He sort of was old for his, you know, a front lines kind of guy. He, he was sort of taking a break from his academic career. And so he could step back into the perspective and he'd see this guy, like this one guy came in and... Uh, you know, he had this huge, horrible gash on his back, like just gnarly, horrible thing you saw. And, uh, and they gave him a shot of morphine and he complained about how much the needle hurt when he put it in, you know, and the guy, even though he had this giant, even though he had this giant thing in his back and he'd had it for hours. Like this was not, it was not like dulled by shock. It was, um, you know, he, he, he'd been, you know, he'd been on the road for a while. So, Beecher was thinking, you know, how is it that this guy is able to manage that pain? What kind of force? And, and, and uh, you know, there, there's a lot of ways to explain that particular guy, and, it, and it's probably not placebo, but it got Henry Beecher thinking about placebo, about uh, uh, why this person would feel okay and someone else who got hit by a truck, you know, in their neighborhood would feel terrible because, you know, this person is, you know, this guy's, the, the soldier's going home and, and the guy who's hit by a truck, you know, his life just got ruined. You know, what, what what's the emotional underlying rules of pain? And it sent him down this pathway that eventually led uh, some of his, uh, his acolytes to, um, to suggest that maybe we should test all drugs against a placebo. Maybe that should be the metric that you use. If it's not more powerful than a placebo, well, then it's not, it's not a real, uh, it's, it shouldn't be allowed. And this was a, a revolutionary idea in my mind. Probably a controversial one, too, to it a certain was. extent. It was. There were these great, you can read these, these arguments. There, uh, Kefaufer was the name of this... Uh, of this this lawmaker who who picked up the this mantle and became his thing and and he had these arguments with with uh with the uh drug companies the drug companies up until then just had to show that a drug was safe they didn't have to show it was effective and he said you know uh he had these arguments going round and round and he you know he'd say um well you know you you know it, you know if your drugs are effective you should have this test and he said well They'd say, well, it's effective because, you know, we can see it's effective. And he says, well, then you should be able to test it and find that out. And he said, well, we don't need to test it. We know it is, you know, and he go round and round and round. And, and, and it was this circular logic and it was just never going to happen. Like, you know, there were just the drug companies were not interested in having, uh, you know, having to prove that their drugs were effective. They, they just, they, it's, if it's safe, we know it works, then it works. So then what took us to the point where we have, legitimate phase three trials now i mean that might like the drug companies didn't want to do it the public probably surely wasn't educated enough to even know about this topic the short answer is thalidomide um thalidomide uh is where it all uh, and and those who uh i'm sure you got some science nerds and your listeners uh thalidomide was a was a a morning sickness drug in in europe that um uh, turned out caused some pretty severe uh, birth defects and, and birth problems, which um, in a morning drug is 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 less than ideal. And so uh, there were there were it was it was 
it, it was it was a, a tragic tragic um, disaster when it came to uh, to, to public health but it was also this panic there there had never been really a, a, a panic like this and and the panic and it really didn't affect the United States the United States uh, very wisely um, and, and thanks to some very heroic actions kept thalidomide out of our out of our markets but the panic still came into the United States and there was this call to the to the to go, to government to do something anything so basically Congress looked around for the first Bill they could find dealing with medicine, and they saw Kefauver's bill, and they, they grabbed it and and uh, and just they ran it through Congress in a day. It was the fastest passing of a of a bill outside of a declaration of war, like in U.S. history. Um, it was just this bipartisan moment of panic, uh, and and they really didn't, I don't know if they really knew. So I guess were. if we're looking for unity, panic is might be the actual unifying force driver. Yes, mm-hmm. just, just you know <laughs> hold it the litamite gun to their head, and they will and they they'll fall in line. And I don't know if they fully knew what they were passing, but what happened was when they passed that bill, after that moment. Every drug that was going to be allowed by the FDA had to prove that it was more effective than a placebo and had to do it more than once. Um, and so a little side note that, you know, they had to actually go back through and, and check all the drugs they've been using for many, many years. And they got rid of a thousand drugs. Wow. A thousand drugs that they had had on the books that they had been using that w- were not effective enough to outperform a placebo, which shows you why they didn't, you know, why maybe it wasn't the first priority for a lot of these companies to uh to to have that be their their metric take us into where we are currently with a placebo are people still researching this and do we have an understanding of what actually happens during a placebo effect moment so um the last 15 even maybe 20 years but really 15 years of Placebo research have been um, really a renaissance of work um, that that's been very exciting to watch. Um, for a long time, there you know a, a, a number of very dedicated, brilliant scientists were sort of working on this, but it, it's hard to figure out exactly what the mechanisms are, how they work, um, and 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 their you know amazing work was happening. But it wasn't until we were able to start doing imaging that um, I think a lot of these things really came into clearer view and um and what we know now is that uh placebo effects they oftentimes they involve real chemicals real drugs we call it your internal pharmacy there are um drugs inside your own head that basically your brain uses to ensure that expectation meets reality so if if you expect that pill you take to to have a certain effect on you and it doesn't do it on its own your brain will step in with its own drugs and make that expectation fit as best it can. And so you're asserting there's real chemistry happening in this. Absolutely. You know, you talk about opioids. You know, that's the, the pain is really easy to study when it comes to this because I can put you in a lab and I can put you in pain. Why is it always pain? Because <laughs> I can't put you in a lab and like make you feel depression. You know, <laughs> I can't. I can't like you know cause you know Parkinson's or irritable bowel syndrome. Fair enough. Yeah, fair I enough. guess I could feed you something to make you, you know, <laughs> give you some really spicy uh, Mexican food or something like that, and and see what what happens. But uh, that's not really the same thing. Like you need something that you can like that you can induce and then measure. And so, unfortunately, pain's the only thing that really fits. Nausea. I, I, I wanted to a lab that was working with nausea, 
and that wasn't much fun either. Uh, you can you can make you can make someone throw up pretty easily. <laughs> so did you subject yourself to this? Yeah, almost everything I could, I I, I signed up for, and I uh, I experienced. Um, th- th- these are internal processes. This is who we are, and you can't write about it unless you felt it, unless you've done it. And so uh, this is real chemistry, like you said. This is you know, and and these opioids, these internal opioids. Related to the endorphins that we feel when we go running, um, these things are real. This is real chemistry, and and um, and you can block it if you take naloxone. You can actually block your placebo response, so you won't have one anymore. That's how tangible this stuff is. It's it's man- you can manipulate it. Can you take us into one of the experiments? Uh, describe what it was like to be in a placebo experiment. Sure, my favorite one was at the uh, NIH in Bethesda, and uh, and it was one of the earlier ones I did, and 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 basically, uh, it was set up so that every time I saw a green light, I I would get um, a minor shock, uh, and and it was sort of uncomfortable. But every time I saw a red light, I get a, I get a pretty big one, one that really made me uncomfortable. My foot would actually twitch. It wasn't nice. Um, and they go back and forth, red, green, red, green, and uh, un- until um, until man, I I just hated that red light, you know. And then uh, after a while, they uh, it felt like maybe the green light had had maybe been turned up a tiny bit, and. Uh, I, uh, after, after the test, they came in and they said, you did a great job. Um, but on that last run, we actually gave you the big one every single time. They actually gave me, they actually shocked me with the, with the full jolt every time that last time. But I, I didn't feel the pain. It, f- it felt like maybe it had been turned up a tiny, tiny bit, but, um, my brain basically had expected when it saw a green light that it would feel less pain. And when that didn't happen, it basically substituted drugs um, use drugs in order to make what it expected at least be close to reality. So it basically made up the difference so that green meant less pain. And that's, that's at the heart of the placebo effect is when, you know, when expectation doesn't meet reality, your brain steps in and forces it to fit. A common phrase that you both use and use a lot in the, the book as well is the theater of medicine. I mm-hmm. love that phrase because it implies that when we sort of zoom out and we look at all of these uh, treatments that are employing the placebo effect, that there's more to it than just administering something, yeah. that there is sort of a artistry that surrounds the entire uh, realm. And can you, can you talk to us a little bit about what you mean by the theater of medicine? Well, imagine if a doctor came into you wearing, uh, in a shabby room or maybe, maybe a bedroom and he was wearing jeans and, and maybe like, like a cut off tank top and like, you know, grabbed some drugs out of his, uh, you know, drawer and toss them over and said, yeah, take these or whatever, or don't, you know, like, would that have the same effect on you as if you walked into a, a, a doctor's office, you know, with all of the trappings and all of the, and all of the, the, the tools and all of the, the, the small cues that, uh, that we use every day to, to, uh, to tell us uh, that we are in a place where we're going to get healing, you know, the the, the picture of the you know the, of the human body on the wall and and the the stethoscope and the white lab coat, all of these things are small cues that tell us that we are about to get help, that we are going to be um, that that healing is coming, and and this is this is very much 
a part of a lot of different it doesn't it's not just in, in in western medicine that you know there are different cultures every culture has their own set of cues and theater that they use to boost the 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 expectation that healing is coming and uh and and it's also in the mannerisms of the doctors uh doctors will um you know uh we we've we've seen this again and again in, in in research that uh eye contact and you know taking time and and being empathetic all these things they add to the power of the cure that that you're getting and uh and this is something that a bad doctor is just throwing away all those opportunities that's a funny place because i would think if i consciously thought that my doctor was using the placebo effect on me, even in his mannerisms, how much that would bother me on, on sort of a moral level, because he's using something that doesn't have like traditional evidence for. But it sounds like you have very different feelings about this. Well, he is tapping into real drugs. And, mm -hmm. and again, it depends a lot. And one of the things that's important to remember is there are rules to this. There are, there are, um, this is not, people say the mind is a powerful thing and, and it, you know, it can do all these different things. And it's true. The mind is a very interesting and powerful thing, but it can't do everything. And there are some places where the mind, the role of the mind to affect the body is, is profound and other places where it is not. And this is, this is an important thing to understand that this is, there are rules at play. And when you talk about pain, you talk about Parkinson's disease or irritable bowel syndrome or um, depression, anxiety, and a number of other places I talk about in the book where uh, these kinds of beliefs, you know, if a doctor's not using those techniques, then he's actually taking away medicine from you. Like he is he is withholding medicine from you, that medicine that's already inside your own brain. Now, if you look at something like cancer, uh, you look at something like uh, Alzheimer's disease, these are things that don't respond well like, to placebos. Um, and so there are there's a time and a place. And of course, there's always... A doctor can always be kind and understanding and empathetic, but uh, when you talk about chronic pain, for example, this is a place where you might feel a little weird that, that a doctor is using placebos on you, but you can't change your own brain chemistry and he is tapping into your own store of drugs and maybe even, this, this remains to be seen, but maybe even to some extent reprogramming the way your brain perceives pain. So you spent a lot of time tracking different doctors, healers, mm -hmm. uh, practitioners of, of health in a lot of different domains in this book. Are there any lessons you walk away with um, for that can be employed by the doctor that you and I see on a regular basis? Um, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a number of lessons. First of all, this, this is not... Um this is nothing to be ashamed of if you're a patient. Um, this is who we are. This is like, this is unavoidable. Uh, and, and across cultures, across the world, this is what we do. And so, um, it, you know, it's pointless to say that, you know, somehow, oh, I'm immune to this. Or my favorite thing is people always say, oh, um, uh, I'm, you know, I don't fall for stuff, but, but echinacea really works. Like, you know, I'm not gullible, but echinacea is real. Um, of course you're gullible. We're all gullible. We all fall for stuff. Um, no, echinacea is not, it's not, it's more of a placebo than anything else. But the first, the first problem was you thought that you weren't gullible. Uh, we all are. And so that's really important to understand. Um, I did talk to some scientists who had to learn how to, uh, to, in order to do their research, they had to learn how to to impart better placebos. And a lot of it came in terms of being making eye contact, being confident, and, uh, and being empathetic to their patients. And that was, um, I think, 
a lesson that a lot of doctors can take away that uh, that just because you think you're doing it right, and these these scientists they believed they were they were you know excellent clinicians, but they learned that uh, when it came to measure measuring how well they could impart a placebo respe- uh, response, they were lacking, and they needed to change the way they were interacting and the way they were treating the patient in order to fully um, take advantage of the internal the internal pharmacy. As a reminder to our listeners, Eric's new book is called Suggestible You, and it's out at booksellers now. And I have to ask, as of my last question, I was talking to my wife, and I was talking to her about this book, and the first question that came up was, is it suggestible you, or is it susceptible you? And I'm wondering why, uh, and she she made that remark, it was just sort of a slip of the tongue. Mm-hmm. Uh and I'm I'm wondering what you what your sort of take on that is. Is this sort of a, a weakness, or is this really just uh, is it something else that there's a greater power at play? So susceptible in your mind sort of is is more of a weakness that we have a a mechanism that can be employed for both good and evil. Yeah. Uh, I'll just say, and we are susceptible to it rather than uh, it's a it's a suggestible, um, powerful positive force it's you know um i uh when i started this i i I actually um you know like many people going back through history you know i probably would have said it's you know is susceptible and these these people who are you know so gullible that they that they fall for anything um you know and 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 i i think i started out with that that perspective and 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 really over the course of working on this i came to see it much much differently and i i i now see that if it's not clear that there's one person who has this ability sort of the perfect placebo responder and someone else doesn't but it 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 certainly may be and I, I like to hold out hope that that we'll figure out how that works but if there is someone who has this talent uh, it is a talent and it is and it is an ability to shape uh your own health and and maybe even to self program how you experience um illness and it is a um first of all we all do it so there's no escaping it and second of all if if it's more profound for someone um, within reason, if you're careful, I lay out some rules in my book about when it's appropriate, when it's not. Um, it is, uh, it can be a very powerful and, and useful tool in in sort of planning out uh, your own healthy life. And if if you can do it, do it. And uh, unfortunately, if you can't, it's very hard to understand people who can. Well, thank you so much for taking us. Along the train that is the placebo effect. Eric Vance, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. So one of the things that I find really fascinating about the placebo effect is how it highlights Kahneman's notion that we have two selves, the remembering self and the experiencing self, and that the experiencing self is the self that, you know, is there in the present moment. Um, but the remembering self plays a much bigger role in terms of how we think about our own identities and, you know, how we categorize our past and also how we because we identify ourselves in that way, how we behave in the future. So let me give you one of his quintessential examples. You know, you're at a really close basketball game and things are going awesome and you're, you know, your team is ahead most of the way. And then all of a sudden a ref makes a terrible call and your team loses and you say, oh, it ruined the whole experience for me. But it didn't, 
right? Just ruined those last few seconds. And so there's tons of research suggesting that we actually remember things that happened in our lives in terms of the peak experience, peak emotional experience, and what happened at the end, the peak end rule. Um, so how this relates to the placebo effect is really interesting to me because, you know, like, for example, in some of these Kahneman studies, you know, if you leave the probe in after a colonoscopy for a little bit longer, actually prolonging the suffering, um, but it's not as, har- as, as harsh the suffering as, you know, the peak, uh, as opposed to just pulling it out quickly, people will be more likely to come back to have another one. <laughs> Um, so placebo effect, you know, this, I feel like that's a, it's an interesting idea of, you know, should we be thinking about the placebo effect as being, you know, part of this, uh, way in which we remember our experiences, um, and whether that actually, the way that we remember our experiences, um, can that actually affect the strength of the placebo effect going forward? What I found fascinating about all of this, like the idea of placebos, nocebos, uh, is that we live in an era where the buzz area of research is personalized medicine and precision medicine mm-hmm. that we can do stuff that's individualized to you in, in with such accuracy and precision that it takes into account your situation this idea like sort of i think puts a, a slight pause on that that we are not taking into account some of these impacts sometimes when we're discussing precision medicines we'll talk about novel targets we'll talk about delivery to these specific places, but at the same time, there is a larger ecosystem at play. Uh, and I think that's actually really the sort of point of this. It, it's not so so much that we broke new gown. I think most people have heard about placebo effect and nocebo effect. We're always surprised at how, uh, where and how it comes up. But these are known quantities. I think what's really interesting is the reminder of that in the context of some of the uh, research explorations that are going on now. You know, we also know the placebo effect changes with generations. So as you trust in medicine more, the placebo effect gets stronger. So it'll be interesting to see uh, in our terms of our political culture, uh, not only in the U.S., but also now across the world, if there is a rise in distrust of medicine and science, will that actually translate to a plateauing or even a diminishing of the placebo effect with time? It's all okay, because I won't remember any of this. This is all a false memory. (laughs) So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Eric Clark, John Kirk, Jordan Miller, Herring Chen, Nick Cadillac, Sean Johnson, and Ken Murayama. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com, and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with the Climate Desk. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chien. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.